When I was a kid growing up in Mayopac, New York, my dad worked about an hour away in Stamford, Connecticut. And down the street from his office was the Stamford Public Library, which had this enormous section filled with sports books. And every so often, dad would stop at the library on his way home and pick up all sorts of offerings for me. Biographies of Rod Carew, of Ron LaFleur, Joe Charbonneau, Ron Guidry, Mickey Rivers. And the author I came to love most, hands down, was Peter Golenbach, whose 1979 release, The Bronx Zoo, was written with Yankees reliever Sparky Lyle and absolutely blew my mind. At the time, it seemed like merely enjoyable reading for a young kid. Now, I view it as much more. It's the reason I pursued sports writing. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Slinging Yang, a podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode features Peter Golenbach, author of more than 60 books, including The Bronx Zoo, Balls, Bats, and his new anti-Trump manifesto, American Nero. This is episode number 156. Let's sling some yang. Dad, being quarantine sucks, and so does your podcast. All right, Peter, first of all, I just want to say, I don't think any writer had a greater influence on my decision to write books than your career writing books and and the number of books that you've written that I've read. I really was thinking about this the other day. When I was growing up, I would rush to the library, Mayo Pack New York Public Library, and they'd be like, all right, uh, number one is in, Balls is in, The Bronx Zoo is in. All these books, they would actually call me and tell me when the books were in, I swear to God. I'm I'm an enormous admirer of your work and your career. So I I really appreciate you doing this, first of all. I'm really honored. I mean, the funny thing is when I was 12 years old, I went to the Stanford, Connecticut Public Library, and I found a book called The New York Yankees by Frank Graham. And I opened this thing up, and I started reading it. And then I took it out, and I must have read it 20 times from beginning to end. I was absolutely captured by the conversations that they had, Babe Ruth's conversations, Lou Gehrig's conversations, uh, conversations about Joe DiMaggio. Um, I grew up in Stanford, which was a stone's throw from Yankee Stadium, and these were my heroes. And here was a book that told me all about these people. And um, I have to tell you, it, it really colored my entire life because after I lived through the 16 years between 1949 and 1964, 16 years where the Yankees won 14 pennants and nine world championships, I decided that I was going to write the sequel to the New York Yankees by Frank Rand. And that was that was how I wrote Dynasty. That was my life's goal to write that book. Two things to share with you. Number one, so my dad his office used to be in Stanford, Connecticut, and my dad would go to the Stanford Library and bring me home because you could take out, I think, up to 20 books at a time at the Stanford Library. And my that dad right. my dad yeah. would go because they had this huge, huge sports section of books. And my dad would go into the Stanford Library on his way home from work and take out 10 random books. So I'm sure some of your books were among those books that my dad brought home making this a very full circle uh, sort of conversation. Wow. Yeah. I know you graduated from Dartmouth. I know you went to law school at NYU. Correct me if I'm wrong. When you got your first book deal, it's not like you were some hot property or like that people were clamoring. How did you even get the first book deal? 
Well, it's, uh, I guess chutzpah is the real answer. I was working at Prentice Hall. I was writing about President Nixon's wage and price controls. And pretty early on, I figured out that President Nixon was allowing the corporations to raise the prices of the goods. But whenever the workers wanted more money, they always said no. And so I was becoming uh, not terribly fond of the whole thing. And after about six weeks, uh, one lunch, I happened to find a catalog of the trade books of Prentice Hall. There was a one, a two by Lawrence Welk. There was a book by, called Where the Money Is by one of the great bank robbers of all time. And I thought to myself, here's my opportunity to write the sequel to the New York Yankees. And so I walked downstairs to the head of the trade book department and knocked on his door. You know, publishers, you, you, can't, you can't just go and knock on somebody's door. But apprentice all you could. And I knocked on his door and he had me come in and I told him what I wanted to do. And he said, write me up a proposal. And I wrote him up a proposal. And the proposal basically had for 16 years, you know, the millions of fans who came. And my argument was, if you could sell books to 1% of those, you know, 25 million fans, you'll have a, a, a big seller. And he gave me a contract, which was really, people hear about that today and they go, you mean you walked in the door and talked yourself into getting a contract? And in fact, that's exactly what I did. Do you remember how much your first contract was for, your first oh, book deal? Heck yes, of course. How could you not? It was for $2,500. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. Now, wait a second. Now, my salary at Prentice Hall was 7500 for the year. So $2,500 was not a small amount of money in, in 1972. This was the summer of 1972. And what happened, I had gone to the Yankees, and I said to Marty Appel, yeah. who was the assistant PR guy at the Yankees, I said, Marty, if I can get a contract to write a book on the Yankees, will you allow me to use the Yankee newspaper clippings? They had thousands of them. And he said, oh, of course, I'd be happy to let you use it. He said, but I know damn well you will never get a book contract. It's like, who's this guy? So anyhow, I got the book contract, and Marty did as he promised. He let me spend three, four months in Yankee Stadium. But after, after doing the research, uh, I had a stack of, of, of uh, research based on looking through the, the uh, newspaper clippings. And it certainly occurred to me, though I had never written a book before, I knew damn well that I could not write a book based on newspaper clippings. So I went back to, to uh, the editor and I said, this is what I've done. I need to go interview the Yankee players. Meanwhile, Mike Burke had written me a letter to whom it may concern. Peter Golenbach is writing a book on the Yankees. Please give him your full cooperation. And I sent this thing out. And so Nick Dincheco gave me another $2,500 and off I went to interview Yankee players. And when that money ran out, I asked him for another 2500 And when that money ran out, I asked him for another 2500 And he gave it to me each time. And that enabled me to finish the interviews of all the Yankees uh, over the next year and a half. I can't imagine this idea. I, I don't think I've ever gone to a publisher and said, I need more money because I need this and that. Was, was it a hard sell? Nipton Checo was as big a Yankee fan as I was. If he had been a Red Sox fan, this thing never would have happened. But he loved the Yankees the same way I loved the Yankees. And so every time I came back to him and I said, I need more money, he said, no problem. Wow. Literally, no problem. And he'd write me a check. Right there. Write me a check and hand it to him. 
I mean, it was a collaboration between Nick Dincheco and me. And when you would when you would show up and when you would call these players, did you find? I mean, these are obviously retired ball players. Were they were they thrilled to talk? Thrilled, absolutely thrilled. Now, the only person who I couldn't get, the only one who I couldn't get was Joe DiMaggio. I went to San Francisco and I sat in his restaurant, talked to his older brother Tom. Joe was nowhere here. Joe was not a coming. Uh, DiMaggio, of course, had married Marilyn Monroe, you know, beating the crap out of her. And and he didn't want people asking questions about Marilyn Monroe. So he wasn't about to give anybody an interview. But it was interesting, you know, sitting in his sitting in his uh, restaurant there and talking to his brother. And, you know, in a way, not having DiMaggio talk to me sort of reflected more of who Joe DiMaggio was than if he had, in fact, talked to me. Right. It's interesting how you learn early on in this business that a superstar not talking, you'd rather have 10 observers to the moment, the backup second baseman, the ball boy, the bat boy, than one DiMaggio. Right. Well, I wanted all that. I wanted the backup second baseman and I wanted DiMaggio. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I probably interviewed 60, 65 different Yankees. And also I interviewed I interviewed Mickey Mantle. And that was the greatest interview of them all. Why is that? That was absolutely because the Yankees gave me the telephone numbers and addresses of all these players, which was, you know, unheard of. The only other team to ever do that was the Dallas Cowboys. I wrote a book called Cowboys Have Always Been My Heroes. Mm-hmm. And the PR director of the Dallas Cowboys was thrilled that I was doing that and gave me access to all those players. But for any of the other teams, the Mets didn't want me doing it, the St. Louis Cardinals. You know, they weren't very helpful. The Cubs were not very helpful. Uh, It's very rare when a team will allow you access because they don't trust anybody. But I made friends with all those Yankees, wonderful, wonderful people. uh, And they gave me the telephone numbers and and addresses. And so I called Mickey on the phone and he said, "Uh, I'll be in Dallas. I'll be at home. Come and see me. And so I did. I went to see him and I called the phone and and Merlin picked up the phone and said, I'm sorry, Mickey's in New York. Well, there was some sort of gathering in New York and Mickey, uh, you know, ran out on me and basically went to New York. So I got on a plane and flew to New York, went down to Yankee Stadium, uh, went into the clubhouse and there was Mickey. Well, he was such a hero to me that I just by myself, could not bring myself to go up to him. Uh, I had interviewed Ellie Howard, who was a sweet, lovely guy. And I said, Ellie, do me a favor. I, I, I can't introduce myself to, to Mickey. Will you mind introducing me to him? And Ellie said, oh, no problem. Of course. Of course I can't. So Ellie and I walked over to Mickey. He was wearing that that, that uh, Western sort of uh, Davy Crockett outfit that he had um, with the fringes. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Ellie said, uh, hey, Mick, uh, I want you to introduce you to Peter Goldenbach. He's writing a book on the Yankees. We shook hands. And I said, uh, Mick, do you mind if, if I ask you a few questions? And Mick looked me in the eye and he went, no. <laughs> and then he started laughing. He thought that was hilarious. Meanwhile, I almost peed in my pants. At any rate, we had this conversation. We must have stood in that clubhouse an hour and talked. And he was stunningly, stunningly honest. He was a guy who really didn't understand why people loved him so much. Um, He had had a father who was, I'd say, to the edge of being cruel. 
Uh, he had a manager. Casey Stengel was at that same edge. Uh, these were people who never told Mickey how great he was. Uh, they always said to Mickey, you know, why don't you try harder? How come you're not better than you are? You know, that kind of thing. So Mickey never had a great deal of self-esteem. And he was telling me about all this. And he was telling me about the nightmares that he would have. And and he told me that this one nightmare, he'd be asleep. And, and, and he would picture himself standing outside of Yankee Stadium. And he could hear Bob Shepard, who would be saying, now batting in the third position, number seven, Mickey Mantle. And Mickey would be standing outside Yankee Stadium, and he could not find the door to get inside. Now, this was 1973. Mickey had retired in 1968, at the end of the 68 season. So it wasn't, this wasn't all that long since he had retired and clearly, without baseball, Mickey didn't feel he was anything. And he was expressing all this to me. And we had this marvelous, marvelous conversation. I mean, I could not have loved this guy any more for his honesty. It was really, really stunning. You're some stranger he doesn't know. You're in your 20s. You know, he gets approached by reporters all the time. Do you have any idea, looking back, why he felt comfortable opening up to you? Because I cared. He could see that. You could see by the questions that I asked. And always when I start these conversations, I start with something where it lets the other player know that I've done my research, that I'm not just some schlump on the street, that I've you know, looked into his past seriously enough and asked him questions that are serious enough that he sees that I'm, I'm, I'm doing something that's serious and hopefully important. I would say um... – your book was Sparky Lyle, which chronicled the 1978 Yankee season in a in a sort of loose diary format. Might be the most influential book for me as far as going to sports writing and also just loving sports book and the medium of sports books. It's a fascinating thing looking back at it now as a as a writer. It didn't come out when Sparky Lyle was at the top of his game. You know, he'd yeah. been traded to the Texas Rangers. He won the Cy Young Award in '77. He'd been replaced, really, by Goose Gossage as a preeminent closer in New York. And the, Number one, how did you sell the idea of a diary of Sparky Lyle? And I guess, in a, in a big, broad question, what was that experience like doing that book? After I wrote Dynasty, I got a call from a fellow by the name of Doug Newton, who was Billy Martin's agent. Let me first say that when I wrote Dynasty, that was really, I had intended that to be the only book that I would ever write. My intention at that point was to become a journalist, a newspaper guy. So I got a job with the Bergen Record in Hackensack, New Jersey. And I started as uh, covering the towns. Then I went to the copy desk where I learned copy editing. And then I became the assistant night news editor at the Bergen Record. And at that point, I got this call from Doug Newton. He was Billy Martin's agent. Apparently, what had happened was that I had written in Dynasty that Billy Martin was as important a figure on the Yankees in terms of their winning as Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford. And I guess nobody had ever said that about Billy. So he decided that I was the guy he wanted to write his autobiography with, which was stunning, actually. And then I got another call from Newton, and Newton said, you know, Billy can't do this right now, but I do have one other client. And the other client is Sparky Lyle. And this was, oh, I guess, December, maybe January. So I said to Newton, I said, well, why would anybody be interested in 
you know, what Sparky Lyle has to say. He says, listen, come down to Florida, come down to Fort Lauderdale and meet with Sparky and see. Well, I was living in Englewood, New Jersey, where it was freaking freezing. So I got on the plane, flew down to Fort Lauderdale and met with Sparky in the clubhouse. And there, of course, was Sparky and Thurman Munson and Greg Nettles and Billy Martin and Chris Chambliss and Mickey Rivers and, of course, Reggie Jackson. And, and again, I was a huge fan of Ball Four by Jim Bowden. Mm-hmm. And I was an equally huge fan of the Cubs Cubs pitcher, Jim Brosnan, who I actually ended up interviewing for my Cubs book. Anyhow, I was a big fan of Brosnan's two books, which were diaries, and the Ball Four, which was a diary. So I thought to myself, you know, George Steinbrenner sitting up there somewhere. This could make for a very, very interesting book if Sparky would tell me what the hell's going on day by day. So I approached Sparky with this. And Sparky, the, the sort of carefree guy that he was, uh, said, yeah, OK, let's do it. The other great thing was I lived in Englewood, New Jersey, and he lived in Demarest, which was two towns over. Tenafly was the next town, and then the next town was Demarest. So it would take me in my car maybe 12 minutes to get to Sparky's house, which was absolutely fabulous. The first few games were on the road, and Sparky said to me, uh, I'm going to take a tape recorder with me, and I will put down my thoughts while I'm on the road. Wow. So I thought to myself, this will never work, but yeah, let's see, you know, maybe he can. Well, he comes back from the road, and I'm sitting in his house, and he says, I guess we can't do this book. And I said, why not, Spark? He said, well, I just couldn't think of anything to say. So I said, I'll tell you what. I'll ask you questions, and you talk. He went, great. And we sat there for the first, I don't know, two and a half hours just chatting away. And every day or so, I would go over to his house, and, and we would talk about what was going on. Now, a lot of it, of course, I could read about in the newspapers. But I knew that Sparky had a lot more of an inside look at things than anybody in the newspapers. And Sparky not only was a wonderful, a wonderful reporter, but I came to find out fairly soon that he was pissed. You had mentioned Goose Gossage. During the winter, George Steinbrenner paid Goose Gossage $2 million salary to pitch for the Yankees. And Sparky was making $140,000. And it was also clear to Sparky that when you do something like that, you're not paying Goose Gossage to be a middle relief guy. You're paying him to be the closer. Now Sparky, of course, as you noted, Sparky had won the Cy Young Award in 77 for being this fabulous, fabulous closer on the Yankees. So Sparky knew intuitively that his days with the Yankees were probably coming to an end. He was just angry and honest and great reporting, and he was not like most of the others who were cowed by Steinbrenner. He wasn't cowed by Steinbrenner at all. He was perfectly happy to talk about the things that he really despised about the Yankee owner. Plus, they were 14 games behind the Red Sox, and at the end of the season, they tied him. And then in the extra game, Bucky Dent hit that home run, and the Yankees won the pennant. You can't beat writing a book about that. 1985, I wrote a book called Bats. I did it with Davey Johnson. Yeah. And the Mets ended up losing the pennant to the Cardinals by two games. If the Mets had won the pennant that year instead of 1987, 1986, 
uh, we'd have sold another 50,000 books, I guarantee you. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my son, Emmett, who's cherishing his time spent with me during the pandemic. I hate you, and I hope you choke on your vomit. That seems harsh. I mean it. Seriously? If you choke on your vomit, I inherit all your 503 sports jerseys, including that awesome new Pearl Washington Nets dandy that's hanging in your closet. I mean... We can probably just go to 503-sports.com and order you one. That's the less desirable option. When you're writing a book with someone, how uh-huh. hard is it or how much of an effort is it or do you not overdo it to write in the in that person's voice as opposed to your own voice? Oh, no. Never my voice. I tell them right from the beginning. I'm invisible. This is your book. This is not my book. This is your book. And you have yay or nay say over everything that's in it. My ego has nothing to do with this. He said, this is your book. You're going to, it's going to sound like Sparky Lyle, whatever you tell me, that's what's going to be in the book. Or Craig Nettles or Ron Guidry or, you know, whoever. But how do you um, do it? Like, how do you, you're a guy, you know, whatever, you went to Dartmouth, you have a law degree, you're writing about a guy from Pennsylvania who's a, you know, Reynoldsville, Pennsylvania, his dad was a carpenter, you know, blue collar mm-hmm. guy, blah, 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 blah. How does one take someone else's voice and put it on paper using his own pen or, you know, uh, keyboard to do so. Well, I mean, every book is between 15 and 20 hours of conversation. It's conversation, and I tape the conversations, and I transcribe the tapes. That's how I do it. They're not my words. Do you ever, you're working on a book with Sparky Lyle or whoever, Greg Nettles or whoever. Do you ever say to them, or how often does this come up, where you say, are you sure you want to say this? Never. No. I say to myself, boy, am I glad you're saying this. (laughs) Yeah, it's good. I've got friends in this business who are nervous. They're always nervous. Oh, we're going to get sued. No, you're not going to get sued. You're not going to get sued. If it's the truth, it's the truth. And that's really what it comes down to. It really is. That's So I have an article in front of me. I was doing a little research. 1989 from the uh, Sunset on Fort Lauderdale, and it's, Valvano considers suing to halt book, and it's uh, oh yeah, the state of North Carolina threatened to sue uh, Simon and Schuster and me for two hundred and fifty million dollars. So you wrote a book. I just want to say you wrote a book called "Personal Fouls: The Broken Promises and Shattered Dreams of Big Money Basketball." Jim Valvano's North Carolina State. You wrote in eighty nine, I guess it came out, or eighty eight, I guess it came out. And um, I've had people threaten to sue me. I I I hate it. You sound kind of what? courageous about it. What was that like? What? Well, as long as I know I'm telling the truth, I'm not worried about it. One week, maybe 10 days after Personal Fouls finally came out, and it came out from Carol and Graff, not from Chicken, Simon & Schuster. Carol and Graff published this thing, and a week later, the the chancellor of the university, who was the guy who hired Valbano, retired. And then a few days after that, Valbano was fired as the athletic director, and he was fired as the coach. So clearly somebody had an inkling that what I was writing was true. First of all, why did you end up, why did you even want to write a book about North Carolina State and sort of their sleazy program? And how much access did you have to Valvano and those guys as you were working on it? Well, there's a story about that. All these books have a story. I wanted to write a book about Lenny Bias and the, and the basketball coach at the University of Maryland. Lefty Giselle, right? Lefty Giselle. So I went to Lefty's house. I... I may or may not have talked him into it. I know his wife didn't want me to do it, but I may well have have ended up doing this. But I went 
to Simon & Schuster, to the editor, and told him about this book that I wanted to write. At which point he handed me a 20-page handwritten letter written by a fellow by the name of John Simons. John Simons was a student at NC State, and he had been Balvano's gopher for three years. And he was disgusted by what he saw. And so he wrote this 20 pages about what he had seen and sent it to to Simon & Schuster. And the editor, and I wish I could remember the fellow's name. Anyhow, he said to me, I want you to look into this instead. So instead of doing Bias and Maryland, he wanted me to look into what John Simons was writing about personal fouls. And it was interesting because Simons at the time was forced to leave uh, NC State. And he was at Florida State where he was finishing up his degree. And I met him down there. And when I met him the first time, his arm was in a cast. And I said to him, how in the world did that happen? He wouldn't tell me. Well, after a while, he did tell me. And what happened was one of Alvano's coaches, who feared that Simons was going to do what he ended up doing, ended up dislocating his shoulder and saying to him, you know, this is some of what you'll get if you do something like that. So I said to myself, I'm doing this book. If these MFers can do this to a student, I'm going to make sure they get, you know, he gets his revenge. And I did. Were you ever nervous about it? Never. That's impressive. The one thing that did happen is after I wrote up uh, uh, Simon's uh, recitation, uh, Simon Schuster said, this is not sufficient. I want you to go back and interview five or six of the players on that team. And that was easy to do because Valvano had gotten rid of about five of them. Yeah. And I picked them off one at a time. They were at all different colleges. There was a guy named Tavian Bins who had been a, a JUCO All-American. And as I was interviewing him, he burst into tears. Here was a guy that Valvano had promised him that he was going to make him, you know, such a great player that he'd become a pro. And Valvando ended up sitting him on the bench and never playing him to the point where Bins left and went, you know, went somewhere else. Bins never became a pro. But Valvano didn't much care about the players. Uh, he, he treated them terribly and, and, you know, he, he would do something like he'd go to three point guards and tell each point guard, if you come to NC State, you'll start. Well, you know damn well that if three people come to NC State, they all can't start. And that was some of the promises that he made. All this was in the book. Yeah. You know, I, I just felt so bad for these players. And then when the book came out, a couple of the players came to me and said they were sorry that they hadn't cooperated, that they wished they had, which I thought was interesting. My favorite book, besides the Bronx Zoo of yours, might be one of your most obscure books. In fact, I just ordered it on eBay for four bucks, which is uh-huh. I, some of my books are selling for about a nickel. So that's pretty good, actually. <laughs> um, you wrote a book called The Forever Boys. The bittersweet world of Major League Baseball is seen through the eyes of the men who played one more time. And there was for a very short period of time, something called the Senior Baseball League. And it was Former pros, yeah, yeah, for pros over the age of 35, which makes me feel old now because I'm 47. And (laughs) you basically spent the season, it was an abbreviated baseball season, with uh, the St. Petersburg Pelicans. And that's why I live in St. Petersburg uh, right now. So, you know, St. Pete, their manager was Bobby Tolan, who played for the Reds. Their pitching Ellis uh, coach was Doc Ellis, who obviously famously threw a no hitter on, on LSD. Um, and it was this really, really, I thought, beautiful look 
at the aging process for athletes and sort of the fade of athletes. And here's this one more chance. It seems like a really obscure topic. It doesn't seem like a topic that's going to be a huge bestseller and blah, blah, blah. It seems like something something would write because they just love the idea of writing it. Or am I, am I misreading that? I was sitting at home and I opened up a USA Today, which I almost never did. And in the middle of USA Today in the sports, there was a, like a one-inch column that said, if you're a player who would like to play in the upcoming senior professional baseball league, call this number. And I thought, wow, this could be a really, really great book. So I called the number, and I was told that there was an organizational meeting coming up in Palm Beach, and they told me when and where. So I went, and there were eight teams, all of them in Florida, and they had their meeting. And I decided I wanted to spend the season with the West Palm Beach Tropics. Dave Kingman was the left fielder. The manager had one with Oakland. Dick Williams. Dick Williams was going to be the manager of this team. And I thought, wow, this would be really exciting to spend three months with the West Palm Beach Tropics. <laughs> so they said, yeah, sure, you can spend the season with the Tropics. And I go um, back to my hotel. Uh, I plunked down, you know, $2,000 for uh, a rent to rent a house on Fisher Island near Palm Beach. When I get a call from the PR director of the West Palm Beach Tropics. And he says to me, we don't want you. I said, okay. He says, I'm a friend of Valvano's and you just got him fired and you're nothing but trouble. We don't want you. Wow. So here I am. I've got this really good contract to write this book and I'm really in a state of panic. So I call the founder of the league and I say to him, I said, you know, is, is there some other team that, that I could do this book? about. He says, well, I happen to own the St. Pete Pelicans. <laughs> you can you can come and write the, the book about the St. Pete Pelicans. And I go, Woo, thank you. So drive down to St. Petersburg from uh, Richfield, Connecticut, 31st of October, uh, 1989. Nine, I think 89. Nine, yeah. And it's beautiful out. I mean, it's just stunningly beautiful. And I'm driving past the Don Cesar Hotel, which is pink. It looks like a giant birthday cake. And the sun is going down behind me. And I'm thinking to myself, why in the hell am I living in Connecticut when I could be living here? Okay, so the next day is November 1st, 1989, and the Pelicans are having their first team gathering. So I show up. Jim Morley, who was the owner of the team, he was there. Bobby Tolan calls me over. Uh, he goes, Peter, I think we have a problem. He's saying, I was talking with some of the players, and uh, they're not sure they want to have some writer hanging around them. So meanwhile, as I'm sitting there, Doc Ellis, who's about six foot six, is walking around my chair, and he's chanting, loser writer, loser writer. Oh, my God. Loser writer. <laughs> so... I said to Tolan, I said, tell you what, let me talk to the guys and tell them what I'm doing and tell them why I think this is an important book for them. And he goes, okay. And this is really where you have to sort of have some confidence in, in what it is you're trying to do. Because I'm standing there with these grizzled ball players standing all around me. And my job now is to convince them to let me spend the entire season with them. And I proceed to tell them about how much everybody loves baseball 
and how they're having a second opportunity to play the game they love so much and how their stories would mean so much to other people reading this. And I said to them, and if you have any qualms whatsoever, I'll be more than happy to let you read anything I write. And anything you don't want me to write, I won't write. And the meeting ended and everybody left. And I'm standing there thinking to myself, now what? Because nobody said anything. Well, the next day, we had to get on the bus to go to Winter Haven to play the Winter Haven Superstocks. Drive up to the bus, park the car, get on the bus. And nobody said no. Wow. And we rode to Winter Haven. And I, you know, this is a turned out to be three of the most wonderful three months of my entire life. It was just stunningly terrific. And these players, they could not have been more interesting. They could not have been more cooperative. Landy Randall's still a, a close friend of mine. Were you at all um, conflicted at all about saying to them, you guys can see what I write before I write, you know, before it goes off? Is that at all, as the journalist in you, is there a sort of, uh, I don't know if I should do this, or does, do you feel like this kind of book makes it different? No, I felt that I was going to say whatever I had to say to get them to let me on the bus. <laughs> and, then, and then I'm glad you said that because it turned out nobody, nobody, nobody asked me to see what I was writing. Nobody. Right. Nobody ever did because they knew what I was doing was for the right reasons. I wasn't lying. I told them exactly why I was writing this book, and that's what I did. And when the book came out, they were all they, they were thrilled. Because it, it, it told the world why they were playing this game and why they loved the game so much. You've written about 753 books. I want to do a quick <laughs> – I mean, it's actually kind of embarrassing because I've written nine and I think I'm the man. And you've written <laughs> – I'm trying to think because the last – I what are you at, 47? How many books have you written? I don't know. I think you know. I think your wife knows. She's standing right there. Yeah, she knows. How many? 65. I mean, that's a joke, right? That's ridiculous. So <laughs> – I want to do a little, not super rapid fire, but I want to throw a few at you. You, you. you did a book, House of Nails, with Lenny Dykstra, correct? Oh, yeah. He stole all my money. Oh, okay. So Lenny Dykstra is probably my least favorite person in the history of uh, Major League Baseball. And he, when I was working on the Bad Guys 1, Lenny said he would only talk to me if I flew him to New York first class, put him up in a hotel, and paid him X amount. And I was like, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. Tell me about your experience with Lenny. Uh, yeah. He, he put a clause in the contract that basically said, I can fire you at any time for any reason. And, you know, I thought to myself, he wouldn't do that to me. Not me. But he did. Yeah. I mean, we had such a good time writing this book. Lenny was really hilarious. The problem with addicts is that they, they, they're always broke. And so I, I had written about 99.9% of the book when he decided he didn't like what I was doing. And he used this clause to cut me out of the rest of the money from the book. Wow. Which really hurt me, which hurt me financially, really, really terribly. But but he's the sort of guy who says, and if you don't do this, I'm going to sue you to get back the money I gave you in the beginning. And and you don't want to be involved with something like that because it takes your whole life. In my house, we have a term for people like Lenny Dykstra. It's a douchebag. The thing about con men is after they take your money away, you feel sorry for them. Yeah. And I do. I mean, we had such a good time most of the time we were doing that. We re- it was His book is really a very, very good book. Um, and he's a very, very interesting guy, except that he's sort of a, a quasi-criminal, except for that. Yeah. You did a book with another controversial figure, Pete Rose on hitting. Yes. Was, uh, we had such a good time. So Pete Rose, uh, I don't know, likable guy to deal with? He had three things that he loved. Uh, one of them was baseball. 
And that was wonderful. And the second thing was women. Yeah. And that I stayed away from entirely. And the third thing was 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 gambling. He he unfortunately was another addict. And and the thing about addicts is that one of two things happen to them. They either end up in jail or they die. I mean, that's just what happens to addicts. Uh, one day, um, Pete comes comes to me and he unleashes about a hundred tickets from the racetrack, from the horse racetrack. And I went, what's that? He said, my partner and I went all in on the pick six. Now, what's the pick six? You pick the winners of the first six races of the day. He said that the, the trainers who we know told him that, he, that the horses he had picked were going to win races one, two, and four. So the only other races he had to worry about were three, five, and six. And he, so he bought tickets for all of the rest of the horses. Oh, my God. So that he would have – so he spent $100,000 on tickets. This is what he told me. He, he, he held the thing right out. $100,000 we just spent to buy these tickets. And I'm thinking to myself, holy mackerel, that somebody – you know, he was making millions. I mean, he, he was – you know, the best baseball player of his generation. So he was making plenty of money. But the idea of gambling away $100,000. When I was a freshman at Dartmouth, I played in a card game. We were playing poker. And I lost $17 that day. And I was a freshman. And one of the fellows at the table was a senior. And he had been the heir of, of some, some catalog, the Sears catalog or one of those catalogs. And he said to me, son, I want to show you something. And he takes the cards, and one at a time, he turns them over. 52 cards, he turns them over. And then he starts the second time, and he tells me in advance, in order, each of the 52 cards. Eight of diamonds, boom, there's the eight of diamonds. Jack of spades, boom, turns it over. Jack. He does that for all 52 cards. He says to me, this is why you should not be playing poker. This was in my mind when Pete Rose showed me $100,000 worth of horse tickets. You co-wrote Presumed Guilty, Casey Anthony, The Inside Story. And the reason I'm fascinated is because it's such a departure. Uh, and I think of you as a sports author. I think of you, you know, as these sort of, you know, the Bronx Zoo and Nails and blah, blah. Why would you write a, a book uh, about Casey Anthony? Well, I mean, part of the problem uh, as the years went along as Barnes & Noble became uh, a nationwide store, um, Barnes & Noble did things like made a lot of the baseball books that I wanted to write no longer possible. Yeah. Because when I was writing books like uh, Spirit of St. Louis, Amazing, Wrigleyville, Fenway, m most of the books – most of the, of the bookstores that sold my books were independent bookstores. So an independent bookstore in Chicago, for instance, could order 125 of my Wrigleyville books and sell them. Barnes & Noble, as a policy, each store would order two books. That's it. Yeah. Two books. Now, I did a book called Go Gators, which was a history of the University of Florida football. And that's in Gainesville. So I went to the Barnes & Noble in Gainesville, and I said to them, listen, I've written this book, Go Gators, 
you should order a hundred books for your store. And the guy looked me in the eye and he said, we take our orders from Chicago. We can order two books. That's crazy. So, so what's a guy going to do if all he knows how to do is write books? He's going to write any book idea that happens to come his way. And so when my agent called me on the phone and said, Jose Baez wants to write a book about Casey Anthony. Would you like to do it? And he didn't say it that way. He said, you're doing it. I said, absolutely, I'll do it. And it was actually, you know, my law, this is where my law school career came in, came in handy because Jose, of course, was a lawyer and a very, very, very good one. So I understood the insides of, of what, what he was trying to say. We did that book rather quickly, and, and it turned out to be a very, very, very fine book. Do you have any books from your career that you um, – like I wrote a biography of Roger Clement, and I feel like if I could um, if I could take it back, I might. Like I don't love that book. Do you have any books from your career that you would like to take back on? There's only one, only one book, um, and I did it with a race car driver. He drove the M&M car. Hold on a second. I got to find the book. That's a bad sign. His name is Ernie Irvin. Ernie, Ernie wasn't a bad guy, but his agent was. And so when I finished that book with Ernie Irvin, the agent said to me, we're not accepting what you've written. I said, why not? And he mentioned, I don't know, two T's weren't crossed, a dot wasn't, an I wasn't dotted. He says, but if you would make my wife the co-writer on this book, and pay her $5,000, we will approve your manuscript. Oh, my God. Yep. And that's what I did. So there she is, Deborah Hart Nelson. There you go. She really was the brains behind the book, I always thought. Yeah, of course. I always thought what Deborah brought to that project was pretty big. Oh, just terrific. So should I buy the book for $3.94 on Amazon, or should I skip on that one? No, go ahead. Yeah, okay, just checking. <laughs> All right, so you have a book out. It's your newest book. It's your 65th book, American Nero, The History of the Destruction of the Rule of Law and Why Trump is the Worst Offender. And you wrote it with uh, Richard Painter, former chief, uh, chief White House ethics uh, lawyer. I mean, there's obviously a cottage industry right now of Trump books out there. Why did you write it? I wrote it because it was an opportunity to do a book with somebody who I really admired. I've seen Richard Painter on TV. He's somebody who despises Trump with the same passion that I do. Uh, somebody who believes that, that what Trump intends to do is to do away with our democracy and to instead uh, install himself as, as a dictator. He has no respect for anybody else except himself. I found it interesting that he and George Steinbrenner were such good buddies because the two of them, in terms of how they behaved, were like twins. And this was an opportunity to put Trump uh, in perspective of, of how he rates uh, versus, um, you know, other presidents and, and, and since the beginning of our democracy. When I was writing the USFL book, Trump was running for president and I felt like punching a wall every day because I was just like, you would think maybe writing about it would be a good release and it would make you, you know, it'd be almost like taking a long run where you, you let off steam, but it actually made me angrier and anger. And I'm running for you oh. working on this book. Yep. Did you let off steam or did it just make you more and more angry? I am, quite frankly, the angriest man on the planet. We might have to we might have to arm wrestle over that one. We might. But what makes me even angrier, something that I don't understand, 
are these friends of mine who can look me in the eye and tell me that Trump is the best president we've ever had. And there's a cadre of them. I was the captain of a softball team. And I have 11 people on my team, and nine of them are Trumpets, Trumpites. It just seems like a book that wouldn't be even remotely fun to write, but you feel like it's your civic duty to do it. Civic duty is exactly what it was, and nobody else has done it. So I'm hoping, even though there are no bookstores, that Amazon will allow this to be fairly successful. Yeah. When you look at your career, so you started you know, writing these books in the 70s, and here we are now in 2020. Do you feel like the quality of books is still there? Do you feel like it's still worth being an author in this day and age? Um, is there still the appeal of it that you felt when you were a younger writer coming up? It's exactly the same. Every book, every book has its own challenge. Every book has its own life. There's, there's nothing else that I do. Nothing else. This is, this is the only thing I know how to do, except I can play a fairly decent first base. And you can use Skype. And I can use Skype. <laughs> The other thing, the other complaint you hear a lot is they just don't promote books like they used to. Like the efforts. They don't promote them at all. Yeah. They don't promote them at all. Yeah. Uh, I remember when I wrote some books. See, see I, I would always, for instance, I would always do uh, Howard Cosell speaking of sports, Howard Cosell speaking of everything. Uh, Larry King had this marvelous, marvelous radio show. I would go down to Virginia. And we would be on the radio from midnight till three o'clock in the morning talking about my book, whatever it was. And, yeah. and, and there were all these radio shows where they interviewed authors. And uh, there's none of that anymore. I mean, part of the problem is that I don't think the publishers know very well how to uh, uh, publicize books. And so what they're only interested in is having the author who's on television. I mean, one of the reasons we were able to get a contract for American Nero is that Painter was on television. Right. And that's the hard part. No matter what your record is, if you're not on television, it's very, very difficult to sell your book. Well, Peter, I got to say, I don't think there's an author who impacted my career more than, than your books. For me, this is just a real, like a, a real thrill. So I, I really appreciate you doing this. Seriously. That is so sweet. That is just nice. Jeffrey, let me have your telephone number. I want to thank today's guest, Peter Golenbach, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Peter on Twitter, at Peter Golenbach. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on pretty much every podcast medium, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing. Crabs in the bucket. Pull the trigger, duck.